There are several places in scripture that um, speak to this um, kind of reality where a person in scripture comes to God and sort of says, man, would you, would you search me out? Would you invade my space and would you find what needs redeeming in me? One of my favorite is Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. And it says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me or test me, refine me, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's beautiful, isn't it? Kind of just feels like it's something we want, isn't it? Like, God, search me out. Like, find in me what's ugly, what's unredeemed, what doesn't belong, and get it out. Change it, redeem it. Bring it to life so that that which is in me that is not good, not helpful, not righteous, not life-giving would, would be taken from me. And I, and I think to an extent... If we really just take a minute, those of us that follow Jesus, this is what we want. To be more like Jesus. To be shaped and formed by him into the best version of what he's made us to be. The version that we are just like him as much as we can be on this planet. But what does that really look like? Like, what does that really look like? Um, tonight's going to be a little different than the norm because uh, if you guys have been around here for a while, you know that our norm is to travel through a passage of scripture in our journey through the Bible that we've been on for, I don't know, a long time, um, and explore the wonders of what God is showing us. But tonight is going to be a little bit more like a testimony. Uh, a testimony is when a person, uh, like David would say, shouts from the rooftops, here is what God is doing what God is doing in me and for me and, and, and what I am experiencing. So testimony is kind of bringing my experience and myself as it relates to God's work to you. And tonight is a bit of a testimony. And I'll tell you why it's a bit of a testimony. Because um, over the last six months or so, I have had the opportunity to go on what we called a sabbatical. Uh, sabbatical generally coming from the word Sabbath to, to cease, to rest. Um, I kind of want to change what we called this thing I went on because uh, generally sabbatical feels like something you go kind of chill, you know, surf, hang out at the beach, get some time off. But this sabbatical was not that. It was a working sabbatical. Um, and the reason I say it was a working sabbatical is not meaning that I went and did work, like, you know, worked on a book or I don't know what people do in sabbaticals. Um, this was a working sabbatical that was different. It was an opportunity afforded me to um, engage fully in a work that examined and allowed God to examine my personhood and my leadership, to fully engage in a deep dive into what is in here to see what grievous ways we may find um, and to bring them to the surface so that they might be exposed and the journey of redemption might begin. So this all happened um, because we decided as a church in late 2020 
um, that we didn't want to live in a space where the blind spots, the things we are unaware of in our leadership, would uh, create ongoing damage or future damage. Like, that's the point of blind spots, is you don't know what they are. And so they're doing damage, but you don't know that they are, because they're blind. And so, like, we think we know what things are doing damage, and those we can work on, but what about the things we don't know? And so we did a deep dive at Mosaic. We invited an external uh, group in to come in and do a leadership audit in late 2020, uh, where they interviewed all of our staff um, at Mosaic, and they interviewed a bunch of elders and deacons and other people, and, and they did a bunch of surveys, all asking the question, like, what's it like? to be led by these leaders, uh, me being one of them. And they got to share uh, the beauty and the brutality of what that is like. And so a report came out, um, the, the exposure, if you will. Hey, here's, here's where leadership is strong and good, and here's where it's not. Um, and so on me in particular, as the um, lead pastor, a privilege that I don't take lightly, um, in the sort of brutal spaces, uh, there was a bunch of stuff that was sort of exposed. And I was super thrilled that all of the stuff that was exposed was stuff I already knew. How fun is that? You're like, oh, I already knew that. <laughs> so I didn't feel like, I mean, I read the report and I'm like, I didn't feel like anything new came up. I mean, you know, I'm unreliable sometimes. I make promises I don't always keep. I, uh, you know, I, I overpromise and underdeliver. I uh, run around. I, li- I don't like structure much uh, because it feels restrictive. So like free for all is a little bit more me and, you know, th- these kinds of things. And so it's sort of, and, and among others, uh, and at the beginning of the process, six months ago, I, I got in front of Mosaic um, and shared a little bit about some of those things. And I'm like, yep, uh, this is me. But um, what was interesting about it is two things. One, um, the group that did this sort of came to me and said two things. One, you, you, you seem like since you know what these are and since you've been transparent about them, like you've told others, hey, just FYI, if you're going to work with me, I might not keep a promise. Um, you know, things like that. Like you think somehow like that makes it okay. Like as long as I tell you like where my stuff is, then my stuff shouldn't impact you anymore. So that, that's the one thing they brought to me. They're like, theologically, you would say that transformation is something Jesus does, but you seem to have kind of said, well, this is me. So I, I guess those things don't need to be transformed. So maybe, maybe we should examine that. Maybe we don't want to see these deficits continue. And then the second thing they brought to my table is, this is the list we see, but you do not know what you do not know. I heard that sentence over again. I'm like, what does that mean? I do not know what I do not know. I mean, I know. There's a report. There's the stuff. And they're like, no, 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 no. These aren't your blind spots. These are just the ones that aren't blind. But we need to dig deeper because underneath these things are other things. Why do these things occur? And so um, the elders and I uh, kind of talked, and the elders were gracious enough to say, hey, Renaud, why don't you take some time and break out of doing ministry for a little while and work on diving into your personhood and your leadership and go figure out what you do not know that you do not know. Let's see what God does and shows you. And so I excitedly engaged on a journey of exploration and exposure. If you ask me what my favorite book is, um, one always rises to the surface. I've got a couple that are on my sort of top five list. This one moves from number one to number two and then back to number one, kind of stays up there. And it's called Hind's Feet in High Places. It's a story 
uh, that the author wrote an allegory with a character in the story called Much Afraid. And Much Afraid lives in the Valley of Fears. And Much Afraid encounters the good shepherd who is from the high places. And the good shepherd tells Much Afraid, because she gives her heart to the good shepherd, that he can take her to the high places. But the journey to the high places requires her to have skill sets uh, that can climb to the high places, to have hinds feet like a deer. And she has deficits and is lame, and so she can't do that. And he says, no, I will, I will lead you there to the high places when you are ready. And so in the book, um, eventually, early on in the book, she is ready. So she comes to the shepherd and says, I want to go to the high places. And so he says, great. Uh, first, as we begin our journey, I'm going to give you helpers, companions to go with you to the high places who will help you get there. And in this little passage I'm about to read, she meets her two companions. And this is what it says. Uh, she encounters these two figures and they seem very mysterious, very quiet. They're not speaking. They kind of seem um, foreboding. You know what I'm saying? Like, who are these two? I don't like them. And so she says that to the shepherd. And the shepherd, she, she asks the shepherd, what are their names? And this is what the shepherd says to her. They are good teachers indeed. I have few better. As for their names, I will tell you them in your own language. And later, you will learn what they are called in their own tongue. This, he said, motioning toward the first of the silent figures, is sorrow. And the other is her twin sister, suffering. Poor much afraid. <laughs> her cheeks went flush. And she began to tremble from head to toe. She felt so like fainting that she had to cling to the shepherd for support. I can't go with them, uh, she gasped. I can't. I, I won't. Oh, my Lord Shepherd, why do you do this to me? How can I travel in their company? It is more than I can bear. You have told me that the mountain is very steep and dangerous, and I cannot climb it alone. Then why, oh, why would you make sorrow and suffering my companions? Consider, wouldn't you give me joy and peace to go with me? I should have known that when God says it's time to go on a journey to see what is unseen, the darkness within, I should have known, because I love this book, that suffering and sorrow may have been good companions, and they certainly have been. So I'm going to walk you through my journey over the last six months with the hope that it will invite you into one of your own. Maybe not immediately. I'm 47 years old. So most of you just gasped and went, oh my gosh, he planted mosaic before I was alive. So you've got decades before you even get here. And so just know this, the good news is the journey of life and exposure and discovering the darkness within us never ends while we're on this planet. And so you are beginning but I hope my story will invite you into the beginnings of your own, where you would allow God to begin a work of exposing things beyond what you are comfortable with.
In my journey, I began with this decision. I knew that if I was going to truly open myself up to see what needed to be seen, I would have to first surrender those things that were dear to me. Because if you are in the journey of exposure and something is exposed that might cause you to believe that the thing you hold dear might be taken from you, your natural tendency will be defensiveness and closeness to that exposure because your fear will be, if this is seen fully, then maybe I can't have what I love. And so for me, besides my wife and kids, who I'm not um, putting on the altar of, of, of surrender because I have a covenant relationship with them and I'm going to take my last breath with them whether I like it or not and whether they like it or not. Um, but the rest of my life, things like vocational ministry or things like the, being the pastor of Mosaic Church or things like being a part of Mosaic Church at all, a church I had the privilege of planting and have been a part of since its inception, these kinds of things I had to put on the altar. And so I traveled into what in my imagination I hold dear as the Mount of Surrender. I'm going to speak a bit like that tonight because that's how the book unfolds. Each chapter in the book of Hinds Feet and High Places has a name like the Shores of Loneliness or the Desert of Despair or the, you know, things like that. There's also some nicer names, but some of her journey is into hard places because one of the things that Much Afraid discovers is that in our journey to Christ-likeness, our journey to the high places, our journey to the redemption of the darkness within us in our sanctifying process feels like it should be an upward journey at all times, but it's often not. It is up and down. It is up into higher places and then down into valleys. It is into dark and despairing places and high and exciting places, and it moves back and forth. And so I'm going to share with you my journey that starts on the mountain of surrender. And there I said to God, God, I don't want to assume that at the end of these few months that I will still be the lead pastor of Mosaic Church or that I even should be. I'm not going to assume that I should even be on staff at Mosaic Church. I'm not going to assume that I should even be in pastoral ministry at all. I hope I am, but I'm not going to assume that. I'm going to lay that down and say, if this journey exposes things in me that means I am not the best person for this space, then give me the courage to accept that fully. And so I surrendered those spaces. Now, it turns out in surrender, if you ever surrender things that are dear to you, the initial surrendering on the Mount of Surrender is the easy part. That's kind of like, yeah, here, God, yay. But you will feel the pain of surrender when you feel the loss of what you've surrendered. See, it's easy to say, here it is, God. It's much more difficult when suddenly you feel its absence. And for the next few months, I would feel the absence of those spaces, the absence of being able to preach, the absence of being able to shepherd people, the absence of being able to be at Mosaic at all, to be in community, the absence of community, the absence of many things I held dear. And in that absence, my soul would feel that loss and would be dared into wondering whether that absence would also cause my relationship with God to diminish. Why? Because you see, for me, much of my relationship with God is tied into what I get to do. I study the word of God every week in diligence with a team of people to be able to preach come Sunday. And part of that study, because I hold the word of God so dear in my heart and find it such a privilege to preach, is part of the way I relate with God. My study is not separate from my devotional life. It is a part of it. And every day I spend most of my vocational ministry life going from meeting to meeting, entering the beauty and brutality of people's lives, often in circumstances way above my pay grade, 
And I have to enter those spaces asking the Spirit of God to give me wisdom beyond my years and beyond my human capacity to be able to speak the gospel into spaces I don't even fathom. And so much of my relationship with God is tied to the ongoing dailiness of journeying in the shepherding spaces and the teaching spaces in which I live. What happens when those are taken from you? Does your relationship with God diminish into an empty space? These were some of the discoveries I would make. God offered me a beach later on in my couple of months journey. I'm going to bounce to the beach for a second, not to kind of skip the rest. We'll get to it. But it's so connected, I didn't want to leave the beach out. I was actually literally on the beach walking with my wife um, about five months into the journey. And Brooke said to me, hey, it's been months now since you've preached, months since you've shepherded anybody. And this is a space where you've always encountered God in very deep and profound ways. Has it felt like your relationship with God was less? It was a great question. I hadn't really thought about it in tangible ways. And so I spent time thinking about it. And I want to tell you, among many things that were exposed that are brutal, which we'll get to in a second, this one was a gift from God that was beautiful. Because it turns out, as I examined that, I realized my relationship with God hadn't diminished at all. See, I've believed for much of my life that what you do is not nearly as important as why you do it and how you do it. Our nature of participating in the sacred is not what you're doing, it's how and why you do it. It is as sacred to be a business person as it is to be a vocational minister in vocational ministry or to be the leader of a nonprofit or a staff person nonprofit or working uh, in any capacity at any company, whether it be at Disney or anywhere else. Those are just things, being a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, a sibling or a friend. These are things we are, spaces we travel in and out of. They are not what makes something sacred. But what we do with those spaces, how we handle them and why we're in them, those make them sacred. It is as sacred to work at Disney as it is to be in vocational ministry. I've always believed this to be true. But you have to wonder when you actually aren't in vocational ministry anymore, will it be as easy to say that's true? When all you get to do is walk and stare at the sky. And God was gracious to me in saying, Renault, it is true. Because I will tell you, my relationship with God did not diminish one iota, not one bit. It just shifted from running around in meetings to my engagement with my children or my wife or myself. I engaged with myself all day long, multiple voices in my head. Don't take that too far. I spend so much time with myself, both the beauty and brutality of myself, that it was there that I encountered God a great deal. So I would just encourage you, take the time to examine whether your relationship with God is deeply tied to a single circumstance, relational dynamic in your life. And if it is, begin to release that. Our relationship with God transcends all those spaces because we will move in and out of them as life progresses. And they in of themselves don't make anything sacred. But how? We live in those spaces and why we live in those spaces. That is where our relationship with God is beautiful. But in the journey between the Mount of Surrender and the beach where God said, it is surrendered, much occurred. My journey began in entering what I lovingly call the desert of light. Or better put, the desert of searing sun and death rays. Because light... And the sun uh, is beautiful, but when light comes and it exposes, it does not feel beautiful. It feels searing. And to enter into that space where I would begin my journey of examining and seeing what God wants to show me about myself 
it started uh, with a gateway. Um, in the movie The Neverending Story, Atreyu, who's the main character, at one point has to enter through these gates, the Sphinx, I think they're called. And the whole point of these gates is it says that the gates can see into the deepest parts of your character, and if there's anything that's flawed, they kill you. <laughs> Thankfully, my gates didn't say that. But walking into the desert where I would spend time processing all that God would show me that was unredeemed and brutal inside of me had to begin with some gates of seeing. And that started with a counseling intensive that began my sabbatical journey. And in case you don't know what a counseling intensive is, neither did I at the time. Um, it is when a therapist uh, sits with you from 8 a.m. in the morning until 6 p.m. at night with a 30-minute lunch break four days in a row and does not pause and digs into every single shadowy part of your entire life from the time you were conceived to where you stand before that therapist. And so a man named Rick, who I met at the beginning of my therapeutic intensive, and I was like, hi, I'm Renault. You're Rick. When we're done, you will know everything about me. I am about to expose myself completely to a total stranger. You want to talk about awkward? You should try that on for some stage. And so here I walked in to this person saying, okay, we're going to go on a deep dive. I do want you to know that one of the things I've learned in my journey, which I'll speak to a little later on in our, in our time, is that it turns out that though we can be very self-aware if we do a lot of good work about being aware of ourselves, that kind of makes sense, right? Uh, we cannot fully know ourselves or fully understand ourselves without the eyes of others because we are blinded to what we cannot see within ourselves. It is necessary that there are others in our life seeing for us, helping us understand how we are experienced or what we cannot explore because we do not even know to look. And Rick became my first helper, the first person to say, I'm going to help you see. So Rick told me in our journey for four days, what we are after, what we are exploring in you is to find out where your fears reside, where your security resides, the security that isn't found in Jesus. So we are supposed to find all our security in Jesus, but <laughs> turns out us humans, we find part of our security in Jesus. And then there's other things we find our security in that we might pretend we don't, but we do. And so he said, we're going to go find where you find your security that is not Jesus and then we're going to go find where you are insecure. Our insecurities are the things that if we do not have them and they are taken from us, we feel like we're going to die. They are the things we feel we desperately need. They are our idols. And so I announced to Rick, um, hey, good luck. Sounds great. Just want to give you a heads up. Um, I don't have a lot of insecurity because I'm pretty stable. Whoop, whoop. And... Um, I've spent a lifetime embedding my security in Jesus, so I don't know that there's much else I'm secure in, and I am unafraid. Now, I am afraid of the dark, and I am afraid of heights, and I told him that, so I just kind of exposed myself. If you're looking for my fears, I'll tell you where they are. They are where it's dark and where I'm in a high place, but I do want you to know what I do with my fears. When it is light and I'm alone, I turn the lights out. And then I feel the fullness of my fear in the darkness. And I remind myself that I control my fears and my fears don't control me. And I ride every roller coaster I can find, Shikra included. That's at Bush Gardens. You guys don't know about it because you're Disney folk and I love that. But um, it is my favorite roller coaster. Um, I think um, uh, 
there are some at Disney that I, would, I do love, but man, Shikra. It's a 90-foot direct drop, practically upside down. So if you want a roller coaster that is going to stir my fears, that's the one. And so we began our journey. Let me just tell you something. We are all afraid. We are all afraid. Not of the dark, not of heights, but of things we do not even know. And we are all insecure. And we all have security in places that are not Jesus. It would take some journeying to find mine. But we did. The first thing we found after some exploration into dark rooms in my life that I didn't even know existed is that it turns out that I am afraid of pain. I don't like pain. Now, nobody likes pain. I mean, there's oh, I like pain. I'm not afraid. We're all afraid of pain like ow, like a bee sting kind of pain or a broken arm. But I am afraid of pain inside of me or pain inside of anyone like particularly afraid. I don't like pain at all. And so when I encounter pain in me, pain usually stirs negative emotions, fear, anxiety, stress, those kinds of things. And then, and then it stirs questions. I skip all of that because when I encounter pain, I'm like, oh, you don't belong. Very bad. Pain is bad. And I move my pain to places where it doesn't become pain very quickly. I happen to have a very secure space because I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of trauma. And so I have always felt loved, uh, kind of known that I'm loved and safe. And when you feel loved and safe, that's not all of our story. Uh, it's mine. And then I have a theology that's really robust. I believe God's sovereignty and eternity. And I have all this awesome real truth about that. And so between my gospel theology and my safe family, anytime I encountered pain, I had a beautiful space to move it to. It feels like pain, but it's not really pain because I am loved and God is good. (laughs) And it was gone. And I did the same thing for others. I afforded all of you the same opportunity. When I encountered pain in you, we discovered, um, I would move that pain as quickly as possible from pain to gospel. Now, gospel is true, and it's good to bring the gospel to bear on pain. But what we discovered is that instead of processing pain with people, I process pain for people. I do it quickly, and I do it effectively so that the pain goes away, except that it doesn't really go away. Not always. And so what we discovered that my, is that my fear of pain uh, causes my ability to shepherd to diminish. Because when I'm shepherding, I'm not really processing pain with you. I'm processing pain for you. And my pain, I'm so not curious about that I'm not curious about yours either. Who wants to be curious about pain? That's a stupid idea. Just make it go away. But it turns out, actually, in our curiosity about the pain that is in us, we discover great and beautiful things about where we are hurt and what we need to repent of or what we need to confess or what needs to be confessed to us and repented of. Uh, Much of our life in humanity deals in the areas of our pain. It is there that we discover beautiful things about God, and I have skipped that entire section of my life in relationships as well. My fear of pain... Um, has diminished my shepherding. But I'm not only afraid of pain, I also, it turns out, um, have a security in something that is not just Jesus. I find my security, my well-being, in the well-being of others. So I ought to be well. It is well with my soul because Jesus is Jesus. But there's a part of me that also feels much better when you feel better. So if the people around me are well, then I am well. And if the people around me are not well, then I am not well. 
And so it's kind of part of that fear of pain, right? If there's pain, I need to get rid of it. Why? Because your pain is causing me pain, and I don't like pain in me, and I don't like pain in you, and your well-being is important. And so as much as I hope I can say that your well-being does matter to me a great deal, I, when I try to help you, I'm helping you because I actually do want you to be well. There's a gray area in my motive because when you are not well, I need to be a little more obsessive about making you well because I need to feel well. And that means my shepherding moves into a little bit more of a process of quickly trying to make everything okay. We called it dysfunctional optimism. I called it dysfunctional optimism. Uh, I bring optimism so you can be well quickly. But optimism does not heal pain. It bombs it for a moment, but it doesn't heal it. And my insecurity, oh gosh, my insecurity. We discovered and by the way, this is skipping a rock across the pond. There's much more deeper levels to all these. So my darkness goes much deeper than this. This is like, ding, ding, ding. but uh, my insecurity uh, resides in a place where I discovered that I have a deep need for people to know that my motives are right, that I have right motives. See, I'm not a person that cares much about what people think about me. I've kind of always felt that way and always been that way. I'm secure within myself and within what Jesus is doing. And so if what you think about me is sort of irrelevant to me, if you want to think nice things about me, great. If you don't want to think nice things about me, great. It doesn't really matter. Because at the end of the day, what you think about me doesn't give me value or diminish my value. I've always kind of lived in that space. But it turns out that on the external, that is true. My successes, my abilities, my things I do. But what I am deeply concerned about is that everybody in the room knows that my motives are right. Because if you think my motives are wrong, then that's apparently, I've discovered, very insecure for me. In, at Mosaic, I use an example uh, because it's just one that kind of became so clear to me. Uh, so whenever we do fundraisers at Mosaic, you know, we, we're like doing these big like things where like, we're going to raise incredible resources to change the world. I am overly obsessive about telling everybody, look, we don't want your money, don't need your money, don't give it here if you don't want to, only give it if you trust us. We don't want you to think that we want your money. We don't want you to think that we're about your money. We're definitely not about your money. As a matter of fact, please don't give it here because if you give it here, you might just think that we're actually asking for it because we're just after your money. And I couldn't tolerate the idea that you might think that I might want your money. And so I'm just gonna make sure that you know that you absolutely don't have to ever give anything here. And I would do that obsessively with lots and lots of things. Why? Because I do not have a space in my life where I can offer you the opportunity to decide for yourself what my heart motives are, whether you decide rightly or wrongly. See, that is far too dangerous to me. You might make the wrong decision and think my motives aren't right. And so between my insecurity of needing people to believe my heart is in the right place and my security that my well-being is tied to your well-being and my hatred for pain and fear of pain, you can imagine how often I shortcut the process of dealing with pain properly, both in myself and in others, in my kids and my wife and my family. So as a shepherd, I am not shepherding well, and I am obsessed with things that aren't helpful. This led to something else, too, that we discovered because of these obsessions, insecurities, and realities. I don't ever bring pain to anyone. So if you have been offended by someone, hurt by someone, what do you do? What's the right thing to do? Well, we have all these instructions uh, in the Bible, Matthew 18 in particular, right? If somebody's hurt you, you go to them and you say, hey, FYI, you hurt me. 
And then they're like, oh, what are you talking about? You're like, oh, here it is. And if they've if they're got a, you know, their head on straight, they might go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And then they confess and you forgive and it's over. If they don't, then you go find somebody else, come with you. And like, hey, just again, <laughs> you did hurt me. Oh, no, I didn't. Well, Bob over here is going to tell you that you did. And so, so there's, a, there's a process, right? But, but the process always requires the person who has been offended to bring their offense to the person who offended them. That is the way of the people of God, to make right what is wrong, to bring healing to hurt. See, what I did is I did something super odd. I don't want to bring anything to anyone because why? If I tell you that I'm hurt because you hurt me, what does that do to you? It hurts you. It brings pain initially. And I don't even like pain when I find it in you. I'm definitely not going to create it in you. That's crazy. And so I did two things. One, when pain came my way, I would say things like this. You probably have heard me say it. I dare you to try to offend me. You can't offend me if you try. I've been saying that for 47 years. I have officially stopped. I take it back. I can be offended, deeply offended. I've looked back on my life and realized how many times I have been offended and just didn't deal with it. You know how I dealt with it? I had a false belief that as long as your motives were right, that whatever action you affected on me that offended me doesn't matter because your heart was in the right place. So if you did something really, really hurtful and, and I could convince myself that you wouldn't have done that on purpose, I'm sure your motives were, were to try to be helpful, then I can excuse the hurtful and I don't have to come back to you until you hurt me. But I also assumed the same the other way around. That's where I started this journey with you. Remember I said that uh, I had all these things on the list and I'm like, yep, check, check, check. I've already told all the staff I do those things. It's because my false belief was those things can't possibly hurt people as long as I'm transparent and tell them I do those things and explain to them that my heart is actually in the right place. When I make a promise to you, I really do intend to keep it. I really do make it because I mean it. I just don't actually like always remember to actually do it. Do you see how that can't hurt you? Because my unreliability can't hurt you because I've already told you that I do it and my heart is in the right place. These are false beliefs. Our actions hurt each other, whether our motives are right or wrong. And I realized that I have spent a lifetime ignoring Matthew 18 in many ways and therefore producing in the church I lead a space that isn't as strong at dealing with each other face to face. And that is unhelpful. So that's where my journey began of exposure. My insecurities, my fears, my securities. And then I walked into the desert of searing death. So this was just the gateway. Into the desert of searing death is where I got to walk around for a couple of weeks and just sort of wallow in these new discoveries. Holy smokes, what does this mean? Can I even shepherd? I mean, I've hurt people when I was trying to help them. What, what does it mean that my motives don't matter anymore? I mean, they matter, but they don't matter. And, and, and who have I hurt? And I, I don't know. And, and what's going to happen with that? And then... <laughs> While in the desert, exploring these things, God invited me into the cave of despair. It's what I affectionately call it, where the pool of seeing exists. The cave of despair was a place I walked into several times over the few months. It was a week here and a week there and a week here. And what we did is we called them restoration weeks. And what they were is that the staff at Mosaic were offered the opportunity, and some others, not just the staff, some other people in my life, were offered the opportunity to come into a room with me with Rick, the dude that I love and hate because he keeps exposing my craziness, 
um, that therapist that I was with, he would be in the room, and then there'd be two others, usually a man and a woman that were both incredibly well-trained at mediation, right? And a staff person or one of the people in my life would come into the room, and they would have anywhere from five hours to three days, depending on how deep their pain ran. <laughs> I ran one for th three days, so FYI, I've, I've hurt people. Um, and they would come in the room, and they would be able to share their story of pain, how they've experienced me, where they've experienced me in unhelpful ways and painful ways and hurtful ways. And I would have the privilege to listen and to hear and to try and understand what I have done. I will tell you that if you want to make the things you discover about yourself that are not helpful, you want to make them real and deep, then stare into the pain you've caused people by the dysfunctions and deficits in your character or your personhood or your leadership. And I got to do that north of 20 times. And it was brutal and it was beautiful. And sitting over and over again, seeing through people's eyes how they experienced me in unhelpful ways at times was a seeing you cannot do until you ask people, how do you experience me? We don't do that very often. You know that? Because we are afraid. Rightly so. That is not a question you want to start asking people like, no, don't be walking out in this lobby. Tell me, how do you experience me? Because they'll either lie to you because they're too afraid to tell you. Or if they do tell you, then you will immediately curl up into the fetal position and begin to weep loudly. Because when we find out that people don't necessarily experience us the way we intend them to or hope that they do, it is a difficult space. I learned two things in the seeing that were difficult, among others. The two that were most difficult. One I learned, which I've already said, that our actions hurt people, whether our motives are right or wrong. And so we are responsible for our actions, and we are responsible to confess them, repent of them, and ask for forgiveness, even if our meaning in them was not evil. So if I did something to you and it was experienced by you as hurtful or unhelpful, it doesn't matter that I meant well. I still owe you a confession and a repentance, and I still owe you asking for forgiveness. The other thing I learned, the hardest of all the things I've learned on this journey so far, was this one. In those spaces, I heard in some regularity people talk about that it's difficult sometimes to kind of say no to me. Or like if I have an idea and they're not sure it's a great idea, to kind of bring that to the table. Hey, don't think that's a great idea. And so I'm like, whatever, that's totally crazy because I'm like a team player. In fact, I've lived my whole life really deeply driven by the idea that I want to empower people to be the very best version of themselves. I want to give you wings and I want to be the wind beneath your wings. I mean, I want to do both. And I don't, I don't need any accolades or anything else. So I don't, I really just, I'm going to be in the background just like, I just want to empower you. Whatever you don't think you can do, I want to help you think you can do it. And so inspiration and, and zeal and passion, these are the things I bring to the table. And I've always thought what a joy it is that uh, I am the kind of leader that doesn't force people to do things or uh, doesn't drive people to the uh, burn the candle on two ends and, and die. Like, I don't want to be that guy. In fact, when I hear about leadership that is more narcissistic and more driven and more like you just use people for your own, I don't know, accolades, it drives me insane. 
And it's in the Christian church all over the place. And it's in the secular world all over the place. And so those kinds of leaders, bullies and forcible people, I am not those people. And so we keep hearing this like, it's a little hard. And Rick, my lovely and terrible friend, um, would sit in the room and he'd say, what do you you, you mean by that? Like, it sounds like maybe you felt a little stuck. And I'm like, "What what are you doing? It sounds like maybe you felt a little forced. I'm like, God, time out. I never forced a human to do anything in my entire life. Bullies do that. But then as we dug a little more deeply, we started discovering that people, when they're around me sometimes, the sheer force of my zeal and passion and like charging is somewhat overwhelming. God gave me a scene to kind of help me understand because I was like, what do you mean? I don't understand. And God was like, let me help you. One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. And there's a scene in Braveheart that I used to uh, lift up as my leadership style. Like, look, I lead like this. Um, and now I'm like, oh, take it away. So, um, so there's a scene where these bunch of farmers have like little pitchforks. And they've never fought a battle in the day of their life. And they're part of Scotland. And then the English army is standing before them with real swords. And they're highly trained warriors. And Braveheart is on a white horse. And he's like talking to these little farmers. And they're like, I don't think we should fight them. And he's like, we should do it. And there's a speech he gives. You can sleep in your beds at night until you grow old, but you'll die anyway. So why not charge and die now? That's basically what he said. Because this way will produce freedom for Scotland. And there's this scene where he kind of turns the horse and he charges into the great mission of redeeming Scotland into freedom. I mean, they made a movie out of it for crying out loud. And, uh, there's a scene where one of the guys holding a pitchfork legitimately looks over at the other guy and you see it in his eyes. He's like, does this feel as stupid to you as it feels to me? Like you see it. You're like, what do we do? But the truth is like, what do you do? I mean, the dude on the horse is charging and he's kind of inspired you. And you haven't, I mean, you're certain this is dumb and suicidal. But you're, and, and then what happens in Braveheart? And they all charge. And and God whispered to my heart, sometimes, Renaud, sometimes. You forget to get off the horse and just say, hey, um, can we talk this through? Anybody feeling a bit uncomfortable about this? You're on the horse and you're like, anybody got a problem with it? Come on, speak up. We're a team. Let's go. (laughs) The word that comes out, the question that emerges is these people Did they have to charge the English army? Were they forced? Uh, Hard question, isn't it? Is the answer no? Because they could have just turned away and walked home. Or is the answer yes? They could have, but would they have? You have to understand that when you are a person that finds your being, your purpose, your life, in the idea that you have empowered people, and you discover that sometimes... It wasn't empowering. It was overwhelming. That takes you to deep places of grief. That was where I found myself thinking I should move to Costa Rica to a beach where there's no humans and just surf until I die because I will never encounter another human again and hurt them. Because I remember I'm afraid of pain. I told my wife like a month and a half ago, I feel like coming out of that cave 
over and over again and seeing the monsters within that um, I found myself in front of a potter's wheel. You know, the Bible describes God as a potter, that we are clay in his hands. And at 47 years old, I will tell you that I started having a pretty good idea of what God was kind of doing with me. Not like a full idea, but I was like, I think it's a vase. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, you look, you know, when you watch a potter and they're like halfway done and you start seeing the form and you're like, oh, I'm going to guess vase. Like, I'm far enough in life where I can start guessing the shape. And I feel like this journey, I walked up to the potter's wheel after the cave of despair and seeing and I just watched God kind of take his hands off the, what seemed to be the formation of a vase and just go, ah, hmm. And there was just this lump spinning with little pieces flying off the wheel. And I was like, what just happened? I, I had an idea of who I was and what God was doing with me. And now I have none. I preached a message a couple weeks ago here about God seeing us. When I preached that message and I said I walked into the rooms where my monsters resided and Jesus was waiting for me there saying, I've been watching your monsters since you were born. Don't worry. I'm not afraid of them, even though you are. I'm here and I see you. It was in those places that he saw me when all I had was a lump and all I wondered was whether he was going to toss this lump in the trash. But it turns out that God is in the process of deciding whether I'm going to be a teacup instead of a vase. I don't know what he's going to make me, but he's not done. He's just doing what potters do when they're doing their best work, is not being satisfied with halfway, but kind of starting over if they have to. Now, God's not starting over with me, but sometimes it feels that way. In that... um, book that I shared with you. There's a couple of other quotes that I've come to love dearly during these six months. And if you want to be a person that regularly says to God, search me, O God, and find within me that which needs redeeming, then you're going to have to get used to some of this. The shepherd said to much afraid a little further into her journey, it is a great privilege. And if you will, you also will learn the lesson of the furnace and of the great darkness. Just as surely as those who have gone before you have learned. Those who come down to the furnace and go into the darkness find that afterwards they travel as royal men and women. James said it this way when he wrote the very first letter to the early New Testament church Right after James, the other James, got his head chopped off by Herod and Peter was arrested and the gospel seemed to be squashed by the power of Rome, James, the half-brother of Jesus in Jerusalem, writes a letter to the 12 tribes scattered. He actually starts it that way. And the very first line in the letter is this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials or sufferings of many kinds, because you know that it is the refining of your faith, the furnace, the burning of your faith that develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work. And when it does, it will make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
It is a great privilege for us to walk through the furnace to see birthed in us Christ-likeness as he burns away that which does not belong. At the end of the book, Much Afraid has gone through many things and she's getting used to the fact that this is a hard road. And she comes to what she does not know in the book is her very last great endeavor before she gets to the high places. And I leave you a bit with this. They come to the edge of a yawning chasm, a canyon. And they stop before it. This grave-like gorge yawned before them in each direction as far as the eye could see. This grave-like chasm. Much afraid, looking at her companions, asked quietly, what must we do now? Can we jump across to the other side? No, they said, it would be impossible. What then are we to do, she asked. We must leap down into the grave, was the answer. Of course, said Much Afraid at once. I did not see that then, but it is the only thing to do. Then, for the last time on her journey, though she was not aware of this, she held out her hand to her two companions that, she might, that, they, that they might help her. But this time, she was so weak and exhausted that instead of taking her hands, they came close up to her and put their hands beneath her arms so that she could lean with her full weight against sorrow and suffering. In John chapter 12, Jesus, speaking of the redemption he would effect for us with his work and speaking to what redemption would look like in our journey, said this. Sorry. In John chapter 12. Oh, that's Luke. No wonder it was confusing. Here it is. Truly. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Folks, I wish I could tell you that the way to maturity, the way to Christ-likeness, the way to redeeming the dark things within us was through peace and joy, was through fun and happiness, was through ease And excitement. But self must die. As Christ rises within us. And we become more him and less us. And we say these words. But when we actually walk into them. Do you know what it feels like? Dying. It feels like death. In 47 years. Some of the hardest, darkest emotions I've ever held. Or in the last six months, when I felt like I was dying. And I stand here now, not done, just starting, but realizing that for the seed that is me to grow into all that God has for me, I must learn to lean into sorrow and suffering, to step into the desert of searing light, to ask others to see for me, and to trust 
when they see that they are seeing so I can see. And then walk into the long journey of transformation, trusting the Spirit of God to do the transforming as I participate with him. That I should know one thing, that I will stand on the edge of a chasm that feels like a grave over and over again and leap in, trusting Jesus and Jesus alone to make what feels like death become life. We have much to learn as a church, just as I have much to learn as a pastor. But I'm here to learn, and I'm here with you so we can learn together. And as we do, as he searches our hearts and finds us, and he finds the grievous ways in us, as he heals them, he will lead us into the way everlasting. Let's pray. God, thank you for being so gracious to us that you would both be our comfort as we walk into these valleys and be our seeing, the light that exposes our darkness. Gosh, God, that you would both be exposer and comforter is an extraordinary grace that because you are enough, we can dare to be exposed. I ask that you would continue to walk with me as I continue my journey into understanding fully the things that I have just begun to see. And I pray that for each one in this room, that they would begin to at least ask the question, what would it be like to dare to walk into the dark spaces that I tend to dance around or ignore, to ask those around me that love me, to tell me what they see. God, may we become a people that don't hide our hard things, our dark spaces, and put our brochures forward and buy into a Western culture that says, always bring your best. But may we trust you instead that says, no, come weak, come vulnerable, confess your darkness to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. Give us the courage to be a people that are vulnerable so that we might be a people that shows the world what it's like to be healed because you are enough. We love you.